from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here this week in Madison, Wisconsin. On this week's edition, can California collaborate its way out of drought? Why it's time to bid adieu to HFCs? The sustainability scene in Middle America? And the Internet of Tires? What goes around comes around this week on 350. It's October 21st, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here, as I said, in Madison, Wisconsin, and senior writer Lauren Hepler back home in Oakland, California. Hey, Lauren. Hey there. Welcome back from Europe onto the Midwest. Busy times. I know. It's no no rest, no rest for the weary or rest for the <laughs> weary or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, I got home uh, Saturday night and uh, 36 hours and Monday turned around and Went uh, to uh, Chicago and and now um, uh, Madison, and it's been a really interesting run. And uh, looking forward to being home and at least for a little bit uh, before taking off again at the end of the month. So it's uh, busy conference season and uh, lots of speaking things to do, and uh, all good. So what is it that brings you to Madison? Uh, well, uh, the twentieth anniversary of something called the Wisconsin Environmental Initiative, uh, started by an old friend of mine who I met maybe twenty-five years ago, uh, John Imes, who at the time was environment, head of environment at uh, one of the largest printing companies in America, Quad Graphics, just outside of Milwaukee, and then uh, left there and started this initiative that really uh, way ahead of its time and still kind of cutting edge of bringing together. Uh, state and local business, uh, statewide and local businesses, uh, with government, again, state and local government and NGOs and to really look at, at what can be accomplished, uh, you know, and how to push, push things forward, uh, in terms of the, the environmental issues that, that the state has and the businesses have and, uh, really, you know, the kind of collaboration that's become much more commonplace now, uh, but was really a rarity back then. I like it, drilling down into the state and local, sort of getting specific with a lot of these high-level ideas. Yeah. So what exactly uh, was contained in the event? Well, it was, uh, uh, first of all, uh, the keynotes were, were myself and and my good friend and, and co-author, uh, Mark Puck Mickleby. Uh, we talked about our book, The New Grand Strategy, and and which it really you know looks at how we transform uh, America uh, using sustainability, but from the bottom up. So it is really a community local uh, kind of angle, and and what communities can be doing, what states can be doing, uh, because this is not a time, obviously, that we're going to be waiting on Washington for help. And what John put together, besides uh, having uh, Puck and me do the keynote, was a a panel that I have to say was really good of of six organizations, one dealing with you know, transportation, one with energy, one with uh, the built environment, one with food, one with water, and one with healthcare. Uh, and just sort of and, and asking the question, which is a question that that uh, I think I inspired because I ask it a lot, is what happens if we get things right? And it was uh, what happens if in Wisconsin if we get this right? And and it's really what was just lovely and powerful about this and the, the great audience that they had both in the room and online was the power of possibilities and what's already taking place 
um, in this state in terms of the initiatives to address all of these things and uh, and what success looks like and, and celebrating all that they've done. It was really quite a wonderful event. And later on in the in the in the this episode, uh, the podcast, I'll talk with John Imes a little bit about Wisconsin, but um, it's just one of these uh, really uh, insightful and, and innovative and inspirational people who had the foresight back in in, two, in 1996 to form this group, and that's still going strong. That's great. We'll circle back with John in a little bit, but for now, let's jump into the week in review. So in the last couple of weeks, there's been a ton of emphasis on the Paris Climate Agreement so finally coming into focus as we have more and more countries signing on, um, the agreement actually taking effect uh, less than a year after the UN's meeting in Paris last December. Uh, but this week, there is another sort of climate news making headlines. It sounds a little wonky, uh, but actually very important in the grand scheme of emissions. So our good friend James Murray over at Business Green in the UK wrote up a piece called it's time to bid adieu to HFCs. HFCs stand for a fun little category of emissions called hydrofluorocarbons. Joel, are you familiar with the, the whole world of HFCs? Sure. Well, this is what's used in refrigerants and air conditioning. Well, it's, it is a refrigerant, so it's used in, in refrigerators, air conditioners, uh, and some aerosols. And these were uh, brought on the market uh, to replace chlorofluorocarbon CFCs, which I think most people know were uh, found to uh, affect the ozone layer. And um, and so HFCs were one of these uh, solutions to CFCs. Just change one letter. What could be bad? Uh, and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and that certainly helped with the ozone problem, but it turned out that HFCs were then themselves problematic from a global warming perspective. And in fact, uh, very much so, much more so than um, the thousands of times more uh, GWP, global warming potential, uh, than carbon dioxide. And so the need was to to phase these out. And, and, the, and the big challenge is that, um, yeah, we can say, uh, you know, there are some technologies to replace that, but it also means that that less air conditioning, which, you know, in the first world can be, all right, that sucks in the summer, but in... In in India and and other parts of the world where you know uh, air conditioning makes a difference between being able to work and not work or you know live you know, have a middle class life or not um, it's it's a real challenge to how do we you know make this transition in the name of planet Earth at the same time uh, taking care of all the people who live there. Mm -hmm. So to get specific this week, officials met in Rwanda, where uh, government representatives there delivered the third major international climate change agreement in the last 12 months. And then like you alluded to, Joel, um, the idea here is a phased approach, which gives China until 2029 to peak its HFC use in India until 2032 to deliver a 10% cut, which some people are saying, uh, is that ambitious enough? Um, but richer nations will be required to start curbing their use from 2019 on. So we'll be seeing this sort of trickle out over the next several years. Yeah. And then the other thing that's really important to to look at this is, is as you said before, Lauren, this is, you know, the second uh, big uh, event in, in really as many weeks that uh, a couple weeks ago, I think we talked about this last week's show, that the... Um, or two weeks ago, that uh, 55% of nations signed the Paris Agreement um, that 
you know, put in effect that that uh, plan to reduce uh, global warming uh, gases, uh, greenhouse gases, uh, and and now this it just means that the the power of nations coming together to solve these big pro- big challenges, seemingly intractable with the haves and the have-nots and the developed and undeveloped, underdeveloped countries, it's very strong. And it's it, that there is a, a, a international consensus that we need to deal with these problems. That's so encouraging. And, you know, here in, in America, where we just get so uh, discouraged by the, the hyperpartisanship and the lack of agreement on what even what time it is that we have 200 countries coming together for you know unanimously unlike the Paris Agreement unanimously in this case in Kigali Rwanda agreeing uh, to amend the the 1989 Montreal Protocol to eliminate HFCs that's a really big deal and I have to say it's really encouraging mm-hmm. and on the flip side. Uh back here stateside, we saw what happens when companies, NGOs, and investors come together to tackle a specific issue. I'm talking about an update that happened this week to the California Water Action Collaborative. That's a group that's been around um, for over a year now and includes big companies like Anheuser-Busch, Campbell Soup, Coca-Cola, Driscoll's, General Mills, sort of a who's who of the food and water world, uh, as well as big NGOs like the World Wildlife Fund. Um, and the the groups this week came together to announce uh, sort of the, their path forward. Uh, so they sort of spelled out that they're going to be looking at this issue of groundwater, another one sort of like HFCs that isn't super sexy to talk about day to day, but really, really important. Uh, and then also looking at... Um, sort of the role of rivers uh, and how ecological thinking uh, can be applied to to the use of these resources. Um, And also looking at sort of uh, how to most effectively put together corporate water stewardship and state level water action plans. Um, So there's a a lot going on here. And it was all summed up by our intrepid contributor, Anya Holzemeiser, who's in Brooklyn, New York. Um, And the piece was Four Bold Collaborations Tackling California's Drought. Yeah. And you think about, uh, you know, what the world did with uh, HFCs and 200 countries unanimously coming together. And in in some ways, that all seems quite so simple relative to California uh, businesses, governments and households agreeing on what to do about water and, and how the world's sixth largest economy uh, you know, is going to solve this really serious problem. Yeah, we had some great rain over the weekend in California. It always seems headline worthy because we just don't get that much, but we do have this ongoing drought and, and, and the, there hasn't been really much, uh, consensus about how we address it because everybody has their interests and everybody has their access to water and you know nobody wants to give it up the almond growers and other farmers and the cities and 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 industrial companies that need it for you know making whatever they make and and um you know oh yeah by the way you and me and households who people who like to to cook and bathe um and you know it, it, it's really been very discouraging in the sense of nobody wanting to do anything holistic. So this kind of collaboration, once again, feels feels hopeful, uh, unclear where it's going to go. But just the fact that they're coming together to have these conversations is is a big step. 
Right. And so look for three goals to sort of uh, monitor progress here. The groups will be focusing on building social capital to improve local water management. That makes me think of um, issues like sort of water use in and around Flint, Michigan, where you you need to have uh, the the local community involved because we've seen what happens um, when things can go wrong. Uh, There's also this focus on returning water to natural surface water sources and groundwater systems. So getting creative with with use and treatment. Uh, And then, like I said, sort of how corporate water stewardship plans can fit into the work of regulators and policymakers like California's Governor Jerry Brown. So stay tuned in California and elsewhere. So we have a piece this week uh, by Katie Illman that's about the future of an internet of tires. What the heck are we talking about here, Lauren? I know, right? There's an internet of everything these days. But this article is actually from our friends over at BARD. They have their MBA and sustainability program and uh, have their own podcast every week called Sustainable Business Fridays. And they recently interviewed Maureen Klein, who's the vice president of public affairs and sustainability for Pirelli Tires North America. That's obviously the Italian tire manufacturer, very famous in the racing world and all of that. Um, And so the idea is that given that Pirelli is a 140-year-old company uh, and that it's in the automotive industry, uh, you sort of need to think about uh, the future and sustainability creatively. With this whole idea of the Internet of Tires, they actually call it the cyber tire. Um, (laughs) The idea is that some of their truck tires sold to fleets are sold with a chip in them so that the fleet manager can have uh, more information about sort of usage. It can be monitored remotely from a cell phone or a computer to know at any given time which tire needs to be inflated or retreaded to really maximize efficiency in miles per gallon. So interesting sort of Internet of Things play. Yeah, this makes sense. I mean, you know, we talk about in a world where everything is connected and there's a lot of people who are starting to push back on that. It's it's really not just the internet of things, but the internet of things that matter. Tires certainly matter if you're if you're going down the highway at high speed or anywhere on tires and and one of them uh, uh isn't performing the way it should and and it putting the driver and the car and everyone around it at risk. I mean, this is exactly the kind of, uh, you know, real time feedback with the ability to potentially make, um, instantaneous, uh, you know, decisions, uh, without human intervention that, that, that we need. Um, and I think that, um, you know, we already have, I mean, a lot of us have tire, uh, thing in our cars where it says this tire is low and, and this tire, you know, has, has some issues, but I think the uh, ability to have tires that talk not just to people, but to the rest of the car, uh, is really uh, potentially powerful. Mm-hmm. And in the case of fleets, there is a sort of a magnified value proposition when you think about cost savings in terms of better fuel economy throughout an entire fleet. So that is one reason to, to maybe pay a little extra for tires with the chip in them. Uh, but this is also happening at a time when there's a lot of activity in and around fleets. Uh, this was a subject that came up at our Verge conference in September in Silicon Valley, um, where you're we're not only seeing a push toward Towards more hybrid fleets and very early testing of all electric fleets, but also lots of talk around alternative fuels. So this seems uh, where you're thinking about improving uh, fuel economy seems like uh, maybe one of these interesting potential bridge technologies while uh, sort of electric fleets and those sort of things are still in the R&D days. I have to say that 
that at some point this whole internet of meme is 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 getting kind of old. I mean, the internet of things makes sense because things are or are, are anything and everything. But um, I <laughs> last year I, I started compiling a list of internet of memes, and I think I'm up to about forty or fifty different different memes. You want to hear some of them? Yeah, we need to publish this. Yeah, well, this is the things you can look up. So there's Internet of Things, Internet of Everything, Anything, Everywhere, every, uh, Elsewhere, Internet of Places, Internet of Stuff, Internet of Energy, Trains, Cars, Mobility, Vehicles, Internet of Moving Things, Internet of Water, Cities, Buildings, Place, Parks, Money, Coins, Robots, Brains, and then it gets down to Internet of Snacks, Internet of Cows, Internet of Trees, Internet of 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 Fish, um, internet of you, internet of me. I mean, it just goes on and on. Um, but uh, internet of cows—that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I guess it, it, in that context, the internet of tires is 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 pretty mild. But um, it is, after all, where the rubber hits the road. One great piece we had this week, Lauren, was from uh, a friend of the family uh, or a family of uh, one of our, our great uh, Green Biz colleagues, uh, Shauna Rappaport's brother, uh, Eamon Rappaport, who himself is a, a, a real pioneer and, and uh, thought leader in the world of corporate social responsibility and sustainability, uh, wrote a great piece uh, about his family's travels to Europe and the Middle East and sort of what he took away from that from a sustainability perspective perspective. Uh, we asked Shauna to have her conversation with her bro uh, about that. And uh, here's what that sounded like. It is a beautiful day here in sunny San Diego. This is Shauna Rappaport, and I am delighted to be joined by my brother, Eamon Rappaport. How are you, Eamon? I'm great. and so glad to have you. Well, it's a great opportunity for us to be in conversation. You and I are talking often about sustainability and communication, but today we get to unpack a little bit of story that uh, we ran actually this week on greenbiz.com about some recent travels that you took. The piece was called Surprising Sustainability Lessons from Africa and the Middle East. Um, Love to hear a little bit about the experience and and the insights from that. Sure. Well, uh, you know, as I mentioned in the intro of the article, I set out for a month of travel with the family this summer, uh, started with business, but also, of course, pleasure. But I wanted, of course, to be aware as I went through all the amazing cultures of uh, what, what was happening there with respect to sustainability. And as someone who, you know, like a lot of the Green Biz audience, works with leading companies who are uh, serious about sustainability, I was on the lookout for examples of, of companies or consumer brands showing up, being a part of solutions. And 
for me, actually, one of the most interesting surprises was that I didn't see many examples of companies uh, playing a role. It doesn't mean they weren't there, but they just weren't as obvious to me. I didn't write about that in the piece, but um, that was one of the interesting takeaways. And what what were you looking for? What would you know leadership from from companies in some of these communities in which you were visiting look like? What are some of those opportunities that you envision? Well, you know, as one example, I think we all know uh, Unilever is a is a worldwide leader in sustainability, and a lot of their brands actually are very purpose driven. In fact, they're going through a whole process of, of, uh, you know, defining purpose for every one of their consumer brands, a lot of which are in developing countries, uh, you know, life boy, life boy soap, uh, and others. And so, uh, I think I, in fact, did probably see some examples of, uh, Perseal, the soap, uh, being a part of a solution around water conservation. I can't remember in which country that was. Um, but, you know, even less well-known examples, the organization Sama Source, based in the Bay Area, um, helps large companies manage their data, and they are outsourcing that work to developing countries like Kenya, where I visited, India, Haiti. So, um, you know, companies can be a part of the solution of list- lifting people out of poverty. So much of the richness, both in the storytelling that you do in your piece, but also in the imagery that accompanies it, is is really a celebration of the culture um, and 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 the tradition in a lot of these places that you're visited. And and, and I'm just curious, you know, as we think about like you're saying, the opportunities for um, multinational companies to come in and both solve for some of the challenges that some of these communities are facing, uplift people out of poverty and, and, and bring economic opportunity. What's the, what's the edge there around really honoring those communities and ensuring that, um, that that culture is preserved? Yeah, well, you know, it's a really fine line. And actually, to, to start this story, I'll, I'll go back in uh, a few decades to my first connection with a couple of these countries. Uh, number one, Kenya. I first traveled to Kenya as a teenager as part of a uh, scenario project investigating this phenomenon of the global teenager, the sort of globalized young person. This was in 1989 that had been exposed to Madonna and Coke and Levi's. And in fact, some of those companies, Levi's and Shell among them, sponsored this project. And I went into a Maasai village back then and saw, um, you know, thinking that uh, these companies were perhaps, um, I had to say, I hate to say poisoning the well, but, you know, creating this consumerism that I thought would be such an evil um, influence. And yet, in reality, I was the messenger of the Western world showing up with my Timberland boots and my Canon camera and uh, creating some of that desire myself unwittingly. So it was there's this natural tension there between how do you help developing countries and economies in a way that's sustainable, but also honoring of their culture and not not subsuming it with ours. And um, and now going back, you know, gosh, more than uh, almost thirty years later, um, I still see that tension present. And and some of the best lessons for me from both Kenya and also Senegal, where I had lived in the mid. Uh, mid-90s was that the the best examples of what's working really uh, are about following the lead of the community and of the people that you're trying to help. 
Well, talk a little bit more about some of what you saw and experienced looking through this this lens of sustainability and searching for lessons and insights that were embedded as part of these cultures and communities which you visited. Sure. And let, and let me just say before we go too much further that I'm using the term sustainability in the broadest sense of both environmental and socially uh, progressive practices, not just corporate ones, but societal um, and for me, one of the best examples, and it's the first, store, first piece in the story, is about the organization Tostan in Senegal, um, where I volunteered in my 20s, uh, in the mid-90s, more than 20 years ago. And at the time, I knew the organization was pretty remarkable. The American woman who started it took a very novel approach of educating villagers in their own national African languages rather than the colonial language French and teaching them in the ways that they needed to learn, which involves a lot of storytelling and theater and music. And fast forward 20 years, I was delighted to come back and learn. I had I had an inkling because I'd heard the news, but I found that Molly Melching uh, and Tostan are really driving a globally recognized movement to end the somewhat pervasive practice of female genital cutting. And that's a practice that's been passed down uh, and, and practiced by women upon women and girls, thinking that it's a, a, a cultural requirement, thinking it's a religious mandate, thinking that that is how women can be marriageable and pure and not really being aware of the health uh, and human rights implications. And rather than coming in and telling these women to stop something that they thought was doing the right thing, Molly and her team educated them in the way that they needed to learn about health, about human rights. And it took several years, but the women reached their own conclusion that this was a practice they wanted to abandon. And now uh, over 7,500 uh, communities and millions of women have abandoned this practice in Senegal and many other countries where they're now working. And again, the takeaway was, let the audience lead. So there's a lot of lessons there, obviously, in, in, in humility, in uh, just humbleness and listening. What, what struck you as, you know, as a sustainability communications practitioner, someone who works with a lot of companies and, and organizations for that matter, what, thinking through the lens of our listeners, you know, what's the opportunity for bringing some of those same interpersonal uh, practices into our work to advance sustainable business? Sure. And, you know, this is the perhaps the, the most common uh, and greatest sin as, as communicators and sustainability professionals that we can make is thinking that it's about us. And it's not about us. It's about the people who we want to, whose lives we want to improve. And, and, you know, in communications, we say, start with your audience. You often forget that. But this is a good reminder to all of us that, and, and there are uh, many big companies as well that want to change behavior, whether it's around sustainability or, or health issues. It's a good reminder that if you really want to change behavior um, let the audience lead. Look at look at what's important to them. Look at the way that they want to learn, not what you want to tell them, but what will motivate them. And I think that's an opportunity for any individual, any company, any initiative that's really wanting to change behavior and thus change the world. Mm, beautiful. Definitely a cross-cutting uh, cross lesson. While we're still on the continent of Africa, you also spent some time in Kenya. And, you know, we've actually been exploring a lot more at GreenBiz and, and just seeing in the 
across the landscape of sustainable business, the rise of talk of the circular economy. And I feel like a lot of the innovation that you were naming that you saw in Kenya really speaks to that. Talk a little bit about both the business innovation that you were seeing in that community and how it connects to um, really a, a, a different way of relating to the natural resources there. Sure. You know, I mean, it's just as context, right before I left, I'd been working been working for quite some time with my client, the Conservation Fund, on their business partnerships program. And we were sort of wrestling with this issue of net positive and how current is that concept among businesses. And we were interviewing companies and trying to get a handle on, is you know, is this a leading practice? Uh, is it something companies aspire to? And then I get over to Kenya and find, you know, in the remote uh, Maasai Mara, north of the Serengeti, to find the safari camp that's striving for net positive, you know. So it was a wonderful reminder that even a even a, a you know a, a tourist based business on a small scale can be striving for net positive. They use recycled gray water. They have an organic garden. They were heating uh, my shower water with uh, by burning elephant dung, of, of course, a natural resource. And they're transitioning to wind and and solar and so on. Not to mention the way they took care of the land, the animals, and the people on it was of great, great uh, respect. So that was really inspiring. And then also in Nairobi, we saw an example of a, a, a really cool eco-venture called Ocean Soul, S-O-L-E, that uh, takes the discarded flip-flops that litter uh, the beaches and waterways and uses that as an opportunity for uh, jobs and education for locals who turn those into uh, little animal figurines that have made it all around the world and even been presented to the Pope. So, you know, literally turning uh, treasure, or turning trash into treasure, you know, from elephant dung to discarded flip-flops here to businesses being very naturally resourceful. And I, my takeaway is to likewise encourage companies to look for those hidden hidden natural resources that they can leverage. And so I would encourage, you know, everyone who's listening to collectively, let's keep our eyes open as we travel, whether it's locally or internationally, and look for these bright spots and lessons learned that we can take away and cross-pollinate, help advance the, the great work that we're all doing. And I want to thank you, Shauna, for also encouraging me to look for those lessons learned when I first told you about my idea for this piece. You said, as, as Joel probably would, what, what's the business angle? What's the takeaway? And, um, you know, I appreciate you encouraging me. It's a, it was a nice uh, collaboration in that respect. Well, hey, that's what sustainability-minded siblings do. The gratitude right back at you. We would not be sitting here if it weren't for you. The, the little sister apple doesn't fall far from, from the big brother tree. In fact, you are literally the reason why we're sitting here. Right. Well, you were already passionate about this by the time you were in college, uh, and I was working as communications director at BSR, and I remember that day when I said, um, listen, I'm going to go do an interview of this guy, Joel McCower. He's a guru in green business. And you said, who's that? I'd never heard of him. I said, just, you know, come on, come along. You can take the notes while I do the interview over at his house. And sure enough, uh, you uh, you struck up a relationship that over time led to this wonderful, perfectly fitting role for you with Green Biz. So it's nice that we get to bring it full circle and be here talking about the work we do together. Indeed it is. Well, here's to, you know, the prospect of of all people everywhere finding that role and opportunity to both do what they love and be in service of the planet. So And have great allies, siblings or otherwise uh, to do it with. True that. Thank you so much, Eamon. Okay, thank you, Sean.
So as I said at the top of the show, I'm here in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was uh, here this week to uh, uh, keynote with, with Puck Mickleby the uh, 20th anniversary of the Wisconsin Environmental in- Initiative. And as I said earlier, it was started by an old friend of mine, John Imes, uh, who is a former sustainability executive at a big printing company. Um, John, uh, I want to just thank you again for all the work you've been doing. It's really been amazing, and the vision you had 20 years ago to start this is just really quite uh, prescient in terms of the kinds of collaborations that are much more commonplace now. But tell us a little bit about WEI. What What's the vision and how has that changed in the 20 years you've been doing this? Yeah, I think, you know, when we were founded, it was really about bringing business and government and citizen groups into the same room to solve problems. And, uh, you know, we did that for a few years and it was great. We did stuff on quality urban development. We did stuff in agriculture. But then I think there was a need for us to um, actually be more outcome focused, this whole doing well by doing good model. So bringing all those stakeholders together, but then working with them effectively with, you know, checklists and partnerships and doing different things and really focusing on improved environment, improved uh, economy, improved quality of Wisconsin with particular emphasis on environmental policy, uh, responsible business practices, uh, green building, which is a big part of our organization, and water stewardship. So finding ways to get those environmental outcomes, but creating market attention for the good actors, the ones that are making investments in technology and practice and mindset so that they do well in the marketplace. So uh, tell us a little bit about sustainable business in Wisconsin. I mean, is this a, a small group? I mean, you you know, you know, were in at the beginning of Business for Social Responsibility back in the early 90s. That's where we met. And, right. you know, is this little band of, of well-meaning and, and, and progressive companies coming together. Is, is that the story in Wisconsin or has this become more mainstream and, and are companies that you probably wouldn't have expected to be at the table at the table? Yeah, I mean, I think you've got leadership companies in every sector, you know, the Miller Brewings, the Johnson Controls, the the Quad Graphics and others, you know, the Gunnarsson um, uh, Health Systems, who are just doing some tremendous stuff. I mean, they've reduced their uh, global warming emissions by 91% while accommodating, while accommodating growth. So you've got these leadership examples, um, but there's still a relatively small percentage of each sector. You know, when we've talked before, we've talked about like the green tier law. So if you're making those investments in technology, practice, and mindset to reduce your footprint, you should get real advantage. You shouldn't get just photo ops and attaboys. Mm. But if it's four to six months to get approvals on things, maybe you get it in four to six weeks and reduce the carrying costs on projects, reduce the financing on deals, and send a signal to the rest of the market players, you make these investments in sustainability, you can have these benefits. If you're not interested in making those investments, we got a system for you. It's command and control. It's a little bit more burdensome. It's going to cost you more money. It's going to take more time. Enjoy. So is that happening? Have you managed to be able to expedite this process? Yeah. You know, I think it has been happening, but we, uh, apparently elections matter in this state. And uh, you know, we, I don't think we have the political will or the leadership that's rewarding sustainability. Some of this is happening just because companies want to take better care of their employees, their customers. Uh, their communities, our world, isn't, indeed, isn't that what business is all about? And as you know, it's about attracting talent, retaining talent. So some of the leadership companies are doing it. Other folks are just making their money and doing their thing. So, you know, here we are in a state that's got the goods, you know, the research and development capabilities of this great university, University of Wisconsin here in Madison. We've got pretty good infrastructure. We've got pretty good work ethic. For the most part, we've got clean air and clean water. 
big egg agriculture. Uh, we've got the manure to go with it. And we've got uh, the number one forest products and paper industry and a great tourism business. And, and we have this heritage. When you think about uh, luminaries like Aldo Leopold and John Muir and Gaylord Nelson, we've got the goods and the opportunity to kind of benchmark and brand ourselves as kind of the clean producers, more so than other states and, and other regions. But are we capitalizing on that uh, positioning? Absolutely not. So what needs to happen next? How are you going to take, as you look forward to the next, not 20 years, but the next five years, let's say, of the Wisconsin Environmental Initiative, what needs to happen that maybe is different from what you've done before to sort of move past uh, some of these challenges and and get to some of the the more proactive and and possibly bigger impact kinds of things? You know, um, that's a good question. I think what we're going to try to do is do more scratch tests. I mean, people need to see and feel and touch and understand oh, this is what sustainability looks like. And by the way, it's not a compromise. It doesn't have to cost more. It doesn't, rec- doesn't result in compromises in comfort, quality, durability. You know, sustainability can be beautiful. It can be profitable. So I think we need more of those scratch tests. You know, last night we heard about the Garver Feed Mill here in Madison. This building's been sitting for 20 years, 60,000 square feet, cream city brick. It's open to the sky and there's birds flying around and what have you. We're about to be part of a, $18, $19 million rehabilitation of that building into an artisan food production space. So a makerspace, a brewing beer, ice cream maker, coffee maker, cafe, nonprofit space, event space. This is David Baum, uh, who did the Green Exchange in Chicago. It's a great model in, in Chicago and doing that in Garver. And then being a showcase for 50 tiny homes. Uh, we're in, uh, quite a few of them net zero and doing a microgrid and doing some other things and doing this in the city you know, where the jobs are needed. So, you know, when people are going to see stuff like that, that's going to be something that we can replicate. The other thing I think that really relates to the new grand strategy and the work that we're doing here in Wisconsin is our Main Street Green initiative. And, you know, I'd like to see us do five or six uh, models of green urbanism across the state. We're doing something on Monroe Street now where we're working with 26 businesses and during the festivals, we do things like pocket parks and outdoor living rooms, you know, with the sod and trees and everything else. And the city got very excited about it. And we've done it. We're doing a two-year planning process right now to make Monroe Street the first green street in the, sta- in the state that uses green infrastructure, that does bump outs, that's multimodal, that really creates a magnet for that business district. And as you talk about in the book, new models of, you know, the bricks and clicks, you know, this isn't about working with the strip malls. This is not about working with the big boxes and try to, you know, reduce their, that footprint, which is important. It's really about, you know, creating these green business districts, and which we think will help uh, with the neighborhoods around there and will help with some of the, the municipal, municipality investments. Uh, going forward. Well, it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you for as long as you want to ride this train. And I know uh, that you are passionate about uh, this and as, as anyone. And and I hope you you're, you still remain optimistic after all these years. You know, I, th- I think we have to be optimistic. I mean, it's about, um, what did we hear last night? It's, uh, it's a progressive agenda, but with, you know, for business, for profit. And there's a lot of money to be made. There's a lot of quality of life improvements. People couldn't help but be excited about that message and the opportunities. And as you said, you and I have been doing this for 25, 30 years. We saw a lot of young people last night that are really fired up, and, um, and they're ready to go. They, you know, they, they see the opportunity. They see the potential. 
and they don't see some of the barriers that we've seen over the years. So uh, that's incredibly exciting to me. And as you know, the technology has, has caught up. You know, the, the cost of renewables and cost of some of these approaches, it's actually uh, more economically viable to implement them. But I think we still need a system that sends a signal to uh, the bad actors that, you know, we're going to have to focus these, these resources on you if you don't make these investments. And we may, that, we may need that kind of policy framework going forward, but it's, a, it's an incredibly exciting time. Well, thanks for staying so excited. Thanks for staying so passionate and so committed. It's, it's so critically important. Uh, John Imes, Executive Director of the Wisconsin Environmental Initiative. Thanks a lot. Oh, Joel, always great to work with you. Lauren, you have a piece this week about uh, what used to be called the Global Reporting Initiative and these days is just known as GRI. This is the standard for reporting that has really become the de facto uh, means of, of corporate uh, reporting on sustainability. Um, they're now rolling out the next version of GRI. Uh, tell us what's going on here. Yeah, so this is an update on the G4 guidelines that lots of companies know and maybe love. And so the idea here, they're calling it uh, the world's first global standards for sustainability reporting, um, which sounds very lofty. The goal is to give companies a common language for disclosing non-financial information. But, but, but I, thought, I thought GRI was already a global standard for sustainability reporting. What's different here? Yeah, so what's different here is uh, sort of the board has been thinking a lot about how to be more flexible in the way they collect information, especially as we're hearing more about sort of a desire for real-time sustainability reporting and uh, sort of more modularity in how companies can respond to information that's most material to their businesses. Um, so the GRI board had decided that they needed a more timely and modular way to collect information from companies. Um, and they're currently tracking about 70 to 74% of all the largest companies in the world uh, that are voluntarily reporting from them. Uh, and the idea is that they're looking for more comprehensive reporting uh, that's driven in part by uh, stock exchanges requesting this information, things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which we can get into in a minute. Um, but circumstances where organizations and companies are being asked to disclose sort of very particular elements of their sustainability impacts. Um, so to explain a little bit more, here's GRI's interim chief executive, Eric Hespenheide. What the new standards represent are a 
change in the way that we are formatting the reporting, sustainability reporting disclosures for companies. So we're evolving the G4 guidelines, uh, which have gone through, well, since G4, there are four iterations of it over the last almost 20 years. Uh, and the board undertook a strategic decision several years ago to, you know, consider a, a new, a new framework or a new, a new structure for how we ask uh, the questions of companies around their disclosures for sustainability impacts. And what has resulted in that is the creation of the independent standards board, the GSSB, the Global Sustainability Standards Board. And, and its first task was to take on the transition from the G4 guidelines, which had been developed over that 20-year period, with, uh, with a lot of multi-stakeholder involvement and consultation and, and deliberation. Uh, and and what they you know what the GSSB has and the GRI has now created is this uh, platform of disclosure standards uh, that are modular in nature and I'll get to that in a minute and uh, but most importantly can be updated in a very timely fashion in light of today's ever increasing pace of change and and what are the issues that people are interested in or stakeholders are concerned about. Uh, we decided that uh, the GRI board decided that they needed a, a more timely and, and modular way to try to address the emerging issue. So this whole idea presupposes that there's a demand for a new, better, more dynamic kind of sustainability reporting than the stagnant PDF uh, format. What is that demand? How do we know that it's there? What does GRI say? Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, Eric said that GRI is in active dialogue with 20 plus stock exchanges around the world. Uh, a lot of them sort of thinking about the high level action that happened at the Paris Climate Agreement and how that sort of long term thinking should be integrated into the day to day of financial markets. So the Norwegian Stock Exchange is probably the most out there example, um, where just in the last couple of weeks, they put out ESG requirements, uh, and specifically mentioned that if a company is doing a GRI-based report, then it will meet the stock exchange's environmental requirements. Um, so it, it's also driven by things like uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, which are the which were adopted by the UN last year. We talked about them before on the show, um, but the SDGs really get at some of these much broader global issues like poverty, food scarcity, um, things that aren't always necessarily material to corporate operations. So the idea here is to sort of um, fill the gaps. And again, with this whole idea of modularity, uh, give companies ways to drill down into sort of how their value chains impact specific issues like emissions or like food scarcity. Um, and it's all part of this shifting regulatory landscape post Paris. So the obvious question that uh, I'm sure so many of our listeners are asking is, well, what does this mean to me? How is this going to mess up my day? Because uh, I already spent a lot of time working on reporting uh, and building out each each year's report. Uh, now do I have to do something different or more? Or how's, how's this going to change my life? Right. Well, so I think the, the bleeding edge of this conversation is definitely enough to give people some heart palpitations <laughs> um, because, because really uh, what a lot of sort of observers in this space are talking about, I've heard it from folks at BlackRock and some of the big financial institutions, is that they want real-time data. Uh, they they want to be able to say, okay, I'm thinking about 
um, this very specific area of supply chain emissions. How is this company doing on that now in China? So we are not quite there yet. But the idea here with GRI was to at least begin this shift to online platforms um, where information and metrics can can be disclosed to illuminate some of these impacts. Uh, but they're also disclosed in a way that's compatible. The wonky term is an XBRL taxonomy. So, to, so they're easy to integrate with, um, they, they're already in companies 10Ks or 20F forms in the U.S. that are filed with regulators. So it's making all of this data sort of talk to each other, work easily with data aggregators uh, so that investment analysts or pension, pension fund types um, would be able to find this information really at a moment's notice. Uh, when you think down the road, there's also some obvious consumer implications here. Um, so sort of a next generation, if you pick up a product and then you say, hey, I wonder uh, if conflict minerals are a risk with this iPhone in my hand. Um, that might be really useful if you can do some tracing of source material on the spot. So I talked to Eric Hespinite again from GRI about what this all might mean for his organization and companies more broadly. We believe that, you know, what is, what is being disclosed and, and what are the metrics uh, that are used to illuminate those impacts? You know, some of them can, in fact, lend themselves to more real-time or, or certainly more frequent disclosure than on an annual basis, which is, you know, the, the typical today. Generally, uh, our uh, standards and, and the metrics underneath those standards, you know, would be indifferent as to whether it's done on an annual basis or every five-year basis or a daily basis. You know what it's after is you know what's the what's the content element and and what is it trying to solve for what is it trying to illuminate in terms of the of the uh, impact now in terms of of real time data you know if you wanted to purchase a particular product um, that let's just say it had some metal content associated with um, conflict minerals, and put it again in a U.S. context. Uh, yeah, you know, so that might be useful. So if you can, you know, do some tracing of the of the source of the material that created the product that you're now interested in as a consumer, you know that that can be helpful and and potentially could be you know important in, in a purchasing decision. What we're doing isn't necessarily directly related to that. So it really has to do with, from our standpoint, it has to do more with what would be of interest and, and need from a broad stakeholder perspective with regard to what a company's impacts are. So if, if, if you're interested in something on a, on a real-time basis, uh, and arguably there's no such thing, but let's just say there's a real a, a immediate basis, you know, then I could I could construct a, a purpose for that and, and some usefulness to that. The the concern I would have, and this is more of a personal view, is that that could disguise in some fashion what the cumulative impact it might be on on an organization's uh, behaviors and, and how they do it, uh, because you can make trade offs between environmental matters matters and social matters. And so if you drive down on a particular dimension, let's call it the environmental matter, where did that product, where, where, when did it come out of the ground? 
uh, it may be of interest, uh, but it, you may not be able to fully illuminate, you know, what that company's impact is from a social standpoint, you know, what it, what the social cost was to extract, you know, that particular product out of the ground. So you mentioned the SDGs earlier. How does this new reporting system fit in with uh, measuring progress on the sustainable development goals? Yeah, so this is actually a parallel effort that GRI has undertaken in tandem with the UN Global Compact and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, WBCSD. Um, And they're working on this compass document, they call it, that maps the 17 SDGs to 169 concrete actions that companies could be taking uh, on these massive humanitarian challenges. So sort of trying to to break down these daunting, uh, overarching issues into specific actions. It reminds me of what happened in Paris around um, emissions and climate, where it was saying, okay, we realized that climate change uh, in the big picture is is a massive issue, but the way you can actually make headway is committing now to 100% renewable energy or um, agreeing to to cut down HFCs. So it's sort of parsing these these bigger things to to get down to day to day actions that companies can be undertaking. Well, this will definitely be a story to watch. Thanks for looking into it, Lauren. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find the links to the organization stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks to our podcast director back home in Oakland. It's Soraya Melkonian. Send us email. We love your feedback. 350 at greenbiz.com. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, for all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.